Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Come in. Doff your gear. Draw a hot cider, grab something to feed upon, because tonight's tale is one of cold and long-term hunger. So, find a place, cover up, settle down. Shivers and chills are in store. Before we start, let me welcome you to the Nook, to Tales to Terrify. I'm your host, Lawrence Santoro. More about the grand time we have planned for you tonight, anon. But first, the art of the month. I have no idea who created it. This is our first piece of public domain art, but it is December-appropriate, holiday-themed. It is a Krampus Karte, and pictures our old friend the Krampus. Gruß von Krampus, children. Gruß, Gruß. Greetings. If you've been a bad child this year, if you've pouted and cried and have not lived up to your generalized potential, if you've pulled pigtails and dipped your hands into the poor box well, you may have a Krampus in your future. If you're in one of the Nordic countries, in particular in the alpine portions of the Nordic countries, you've probably seen young men roaming the streets this past week dressed in Krampus drag, horns, fur, bells, chains, et al. They're there to give you a hint of what's coming to all naughty kids. We played a paean to the Krampus from Jonah Knight's new album, Nothing for Christmas, a few weeks ago. So if that was your first exposure to the idea of the Krampus, you've got a lot in store for you. If you're bad, that is. And aren't we all? Another thing. Remember a few weeks ago we were encouraging you to sign up for the Starship Sofa's online class on how to write science fiction. 
Of course, you do know. How could you forget Joe Haldeman sharing his life in science fiction with you? Well, hold your seats. Coming up, just over the event horizon, will be Class 2 in this series. This will be How to Write Science Fiction, this time with visiting Professor Spider Robinson. You know Spider. Callahan's Cross-Time Saloon, Stardance, his most recent novel, Very Hard Choices. So, if we survive the Mayan apocalypse, class will meet on Saturday, January 26th at 8 p.m., Greenwich Mean Time. Stop by, well, any of the neighborhoods in the District of Wonders. The information is plastered on all of the walls and lampposts in the hood, you can enroll just by clicking the appropriate button and by filling in the information. Then, on January 26, keep open whatever time 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time is in your part of the universe. Okay? Okay. Oh, another thing. Buy the book. Okay? Many have. If you haven't, well, I don't know. I, I just don't know. Ah, confound me. I, I keep forgetting to do this. Probably, probably because I am a smugly self-absorbed only child, but here it is. There are other people who help put this show together. Yes, people, other than the writers who give their children to us willingly, without compensation, letting their babes go out after dark, alone, with no protection. And yes, people, other than our readers who body forth the words to give them life and substance and meaning. And yes, people other than myself and Miss Cecilia and Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook. To wit, there is our producer, and by God, our creator, Tony C. Smith. Tony is the force behind the Starship Sofa, as well as the governor of the District of Wonders. His domain includes, well, this place, and the spaceport, that's the Starship Sofa, and also protecting Project Pulp and Crime City Central. So, thank you, Tony. Then there is Skeet Sienski. Skeet is our art and artist wrangler. Each month he lays down his brushes, paint pots, and frisbees and comes up with art that just oozes visceral gore and atmosphere that covers our walls to inspire and fire your dreams. Thank you, Skeet. And by the Lord Harry, there is Cher Eves, who... Cher does so many things, I can't count them. First, she is the one who knows how to use the spreadsheet on which is cataloged all of our stories, all of our authors, all of our narrators. I may look at it, but I may not fuss with it. I don't know how, and I would probably mess it up. She knows, and she doesn't mess it up. She's the one who organizes it. She's the one who makes sure there is a steady flow of tales from author to reader to the Dropbox, and finally, here, to the Nook. She's the one who keeps reminding me to do the various things I'm supposed to do but never really want to, 
and she's the one who keeps in touch with and weaves all the scattered threads that warped and wefted together make up tales to terrify. So, thank you, Cher. Ah, now, Horror 101 is back. Kevin Lucia is here with more genre history. This week, Kevin picks up a few stray threads of 19th-century horror and weaves them into the ongoing narrative. And then, houses, ghosts, curses. Well, you'll hear it. Kevin? Halfway down a by street of one of our New England towns stands a rusty wooden house with seven acutely peaked gables facing towards various points of the compass and a huge clustered chimney in the midst. The street is Pynchon Street. The house is the old Pynchon house. And an elm tree of wide circumference, rooted before the door, is familiar to every town-born child by the title of the Pynchon Elm. On my occasional visits to the town aforesaid, I seldom fail to turn down Pynchon Street for the sake of passing through the shadow of these two antiquities, the great elm tree and the weather-beaten edifice. Welcome to another edition of Horror 101 here on Tales to Terrify. I, again, am your host, Kevin Lucia. And before we begin tonight, I'd like to offer a quick recap of where we've been so far so any new listeners who are just joining us can look back, view the appropriate episodes, and catch up. We began this series with the ambitious project of trying to chart the evolution of the horror novel or the horror story. We began with the early Gothics in the 18th century. Essentially, a lot of these were castle stories. We then moved to the Romantics in the early 19th century, looking at Frankenstein, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Melmoth the Wanderer. One thing I would like to note, and I have a feeling I'm probably going to be doing a lot of this because as I'm studying, I'm discovering novels that I may have overlooked or forgotten, and we'll fit those in somehow as I can. In the Romantics, when we looked at the early 19th century, we looked at forbidden knowledge. We looked at especially the overreacher. In some ways, it's a tragic figure, a character that's trying to aspire to greatness, but for whatever reason, they either make the trespass of thinking they are God, or they delve into knowledge that they should not be delving in. In some ways, I missed three novels, simply because we have a knee-jerk reaction of classifying those novels as canonical science fiction. But really... In those uh, the early 19th century, those romantics, we could also put in there The Invisible Man, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and The Time Machine, all by H.G. Wells. We tend to think of those as sci-fi novels, but really looking back on all of those, we can differentiate between those and The War of the Worlds, because The War of the Worlds is a definitely an invasion. Although, we could also mention that when we start talking about cosmic horror as well. But with The Invisible Man and Island of Dr. Moreau and the Time Machine, we have, again, the overreacher character who's delving into things they should not be delving into. Uh, and they're trying to be great. And there is definitely, in all three of those, there are aspects of horror, I believe, strong strains of horror. You know, in The Invisible Man's isolation and his uh, eventual descent into madness, Dr. Moreau 
Moreau and his genetic experiments. And especially the time machine, you can call that horror, you can call that sci-fi, you can call that one of the very first dystopian novels, especially when the time traveler goes to that future. And how horrifying is that with Eloy and the Morlocks and those underground beasts feeding on the passive lambs above? So those are definitely some novels that I, I kind of forgot to address that fit very nicely in there. Also worthy of mentioning, at the turn of the century, from the 18th century to the 19th century, we talked about four branches of Gothic fiction. We talked about simply the historical Gothic, which is just in Gothic settings, Gothic castles, things of that nature. We talked about the natural Gothic, where we have a lot of supernatural happenings, and we have the Scooby-Doo ending at the end. Anne Radcliffe, famous for this. Uh, The Scooby-Doo ending, by that I mean we have all these spooky happenings, there are voices in the castle. Oh no, wait, it's just pirates hiding in the castle smuggling. So we have an explanation at the end. Then, of course, we have the straight supernatural gothic. For that, we looked at the monk, and we looked at the castle in Toronto. And then we have the equivocal gothic. The equivocal gothic is when it's very ambiguous as to what's happening because of our character's mental state. And in my reading, I'm currently reading uh, Howard Phillips Lovecraft's treatise on the horror genre, the supernatural horror in literature. And it reminded me of a book that I read in college by Charles Brockton Brown, Edgar Huntley, Memoirs of a Sleepwalker. This is a classic equivocal gothic where we're not sure what's going on because of our main character so impaired. Now, I'm not going to back Backtrack, what I'm going to do is when I start looking at the category of the weird, I believe I will begin with Edgar Huntley by Charles Brockton Brown. It'll be backtracking a little bit, but it certainly fits in there because it's it's a weird tale. We're not sure exactly what's happening there. I thought I would just throw that in there. Anyway, to continue, last time I proposed that we would park here in the 19th century gothics because... In some ways, and I have to admit to a little bit of arbitrariness, I have to confess that I'm organizing this in a somewhat arbitrary manner simply for the uh, purposes of organization. This genre is so huge, so wide, how do you possibly map it? Well, in some ways, I'm simply looking at all the stories that are falling before me and deciding that we're going to parcel them up in these categories so it'll simply just be easier for us to address. But we have the 19th century gothics. And in the 19th century gothics, we're going to split them up into four categories. The house, the ghost, the beast, and the weird. Now, admittedly, there'll be some crossover between these four categories. For example, just looking at it now, I anticipate there being crossovers between the house and the ghost. Because so often we have houses that are haunted by ghosts. I also anticipate some crossover between the beast and and the weird, because, again, with weird tales, is there a beast involved, isn't there? I'm sure there's going to be elements of a crossover there as well. I also anticipate and plan in discussing these 19th century gothics and having several episodes parking on authors themselves who have been influential and looking at what they gave to the horror genre. i definitely planning on looking on Ambrose Bierce, Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, who I think gets left out a little bit, but in in, in uh, Lovecraft's uh, book about horror, he really pays a lot of props to Hawthorne. Um, F. Marion Crawford, Sheridan Le Fanu, M. R. James, Clark Ashton Smith, of course, H. P. Lovecraft, and A. Merritt, who I was unaware of, but I have to give kind of a shout out here to the York Emporium. It's a used bookstore in York, Pennsylvania. If you're ever in the area, you need to go check this place out. I was down there last year before Horrifying. Go going through all the books, and the proprietor, Jim Llewellyn, 
comes to me and says, have you ever heard of this author? I'm surprised more people haven't heard of this guy. He was a real contemporary of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, A. Merritt. The, the, the collection he gave me was The Moon Pool. So I'm definitely looking forward to getting into that. And there's a small plug there. If you're ever in York, PA, go find the York Emporium. As a genre enthusiast, you'll you'll probably spend your kid's college fund. It's, it's a great store, a very, very comprehensive, wonderful selection. Anyway... Currently, I'm reading H.P. Lovecraft's Supernatural Horror and Literature. I've begun it to kind of help me chart the rest of my my journey here. And I do have to say again, uh, it's a very, very comprehensive work, almost too comprehensive. In some ways, I'm, I'm reading it in my head, spinning a little bit, thinking, wow, all these you know, stories that I missed or I'm going to read or I have to read. But it's definitely wonderful. If you're looking for something that's going to offer a wide and exhaustive panorama of the roots of horror literature than Lovecraft, doesn't it? And we're definitely going to be hinging on Lovecraft when we talk about Edgar Allan Poe and Nathaniel Hawthorne, because he talks in, in particular about those two authors. So we'll be utilizing his work when we discuss them. So, to get into the meat of today's broadcast, we are going to start on the phenomenon of the house. I anticipate this taking several broadcasts. I have uh, several works I'm going to be looking at that are going to be looking at different aspects of the haunted house or the cursed house, or that sort of thing. And it's interesting to consider why houses to begin with. Because even if you look at today's slasher flicks, even the 80s, you know, superficial, shallow slasher flicks, so many of these stories occur in houses cursed houses, houses where there's evil things that have happened or tainted by past experiences, things of that nature. Houses where the last house on the left, where serial killers are hiding. Why houses? Um, I have this discussion often with my English students, and one of the things that often comes up is that, in many ways, horror is often about inversion. Things are flipped uh, in frightening ways. And houses are supposed to be um, safe. They're supposed to be familiar. They're supposed to be sanctuaries. They're supposed to be places of safety, you know, habitation where we live. So it's a very common, you know, it seems to be a very simple inversion to make a place that should be a place of safety uh, be a place of danger and horror. And it's just interesting to see so many, even pastiches uh, involving haunted houses or cursed houses. Also, on a real basic level, in symbolism, Houses are just excellent metaphors for people and their inhabitants. Is the house haunted or is the person haunted? Uh, one modern example I can think of this is done very well is A Winter Haunting by Dan Simmons. You know, we have a character who comes to a house of his youth and in some ways we're left wondering, was the house itself really haunted or was our character haunted? And then he's bringing those things there. And this, of course, is the house of his friend who died in his youth. So on a very basic level, houses provide just excellent symbolism. One thing here I'd like to note, especially it seems about haunted houses, is that Lovecraft in his work notes that it's interesting that so many practitioners of other genres at some point try their hand at the haunted house novel. Uh, And it's interesting. He notes that it seems like with horror and gothic fiction, that is typical. And I think as a reader, I I agree that you don't often see, and of course I'm completely paraphrasing here, so uh, this is not necessarily true at all, but it is interesting how so many authors who would consider themselves straight or literary or not necessarily horror writers end up writing a gothic novel of some type or a haunted house novel. And I guess it really just shows, you know, how important that story 
story is. How much resonance that haunted house story has that other writers and other genres that at some point want to try their hand at the haunted house novels. I find that to be very interesting. So today we're going to look at four different types of homes in the gothic or horror tale. And again, as this project is, is a project of discovery for me as, as well as it is for all of you, I imagine we'll be coming back to different variations or spins on these tales. But the first one we're going to look at is the cursed home, the cursed ancestral home, and the work we're going to be focusing on is The House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne, and that's what I read to you at the very beginning of the, of the episode. We're then going to look at The Haunted House, and we're going to look at the classic Turn of the Screw by Henry James. We're also going to consider very quickly The Dying House, and in this we're going to look at a very brief Brief explication of the fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe. We're certainly going to um, encounter Poe in greater detail later on, but this tale in particular is definitely an invocation of that, uh, that, that haunted or cursed or dying home. We're also briefly going to consider a natural gothic tale in Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And I think we're going to do this for a couple of our episodes simply because, once again, looking back, I find it very interesting that the... The gothic tale should split such in that the equivocal gothic and the supernatural gothic should kind of, and again, I'm kind of making arbitrary um, demarcations here, but that the supernatural gothic and the equivocal gothic should go this one way, and that the natural gothic or the historical gothic would simply go this other way. I don't want to necessarily call it more mainstream, but it's interesting that we have this split, and that for many years, the more quote-unquote serious writers would go this one direction, and the horror writers, pulp writers, weird writers, strange writers, fantasticists would go in this direction. So we're briefly going to look at Jane Eyre because we have some plot elements in Jane Eyre that, again, have become uh, often repeated motifs in the Gothic tale. To begin with, The Cursed Home, The House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Now, in reading this, uh, re-encountering Hawthorne after a couple years off from him, last time I read him was in graduate school, I was um, delightfully surprised to kind of re-encounter his very lyrical prose, very balanced, very measured, definitely a delight to read. And in the uh, also in the, the House of the Seven Gables, we have kind of a, a forerunner, a little bit almost, and again, I say forward, I'm not saying he's the very first person who did this, but it's just something that I noticed, that we have that invocation of the ghostly first-person narrator who's not a character in the story. There's just a very distant observer. Uh, although, if you'll notice in the excerpt I read, our narrator says, when I used to walk down Pynchon Street. So it's almost like he's not just a ghostly observer, but an observer there in town who's telling us this whole story. It's kind of like a forerunner of Stephen King's Dear Reader or Constant Reader. You know, I, I think of a Salem's Lot, where in the middle of Salem's Lot he kind of steps back into this like first-person narrator and, and pans the time as if he knows all of them intimately. So I found that to be very interesting. A brief overview of The Seven Gables. We have what in some ways is, is a classic tale. We have a, you know, a tale of family sins tainting uh, the ground that a house is built on. Seven Gables has been cursed. Colonel Pynchon was an aristocrat of New England society. In an unscrupulous land deal, he snatches land away from a commoner named Matthew Maul. And he does this by framing him and accusing him of practicing witchcraft. And that's how he steals the land away from him, where he's got his little cottage built on, Matthew Maul. And just before Matthew Maul is hung for witchcraft, he curses the Pynchon family, saying, God will give him blood to drink. 
Not long after, after the Seven Gables has been built, after the Pynchon family has begun to build their fortunes, uh, several things happen. First, there's some land deals that go wrong, and this is something that is mentioned throughout the novel. There's this missing deed that supposedly would gift the Pynchon with a huge estate of land that has mysteriously gone missing, and that'll be an element that we'll see throughout the book. But it's not long until Colonel Pynchon mysteriously dies in his study, yes, choking on blood, some sort of consumptive disease. And this will happen throughout the book where descendants die again, God will have him drink blood. We'll give him blood to drink. So this happens very often. This sets off a chain throughout the centuries of misfortune, murder, bad business dealings, mysterious deaths. There's a well on the property called Maul's Well, named after the original owner that goes sour and is automatically tainted and undrinkable after Maul is killed. Hawthorne focuses in, particularly on the story of one Alice Pynchon, who's a descendant, who ends up getting bewitched by a descendant of Matthew Maul, and she's kind of ruined. It's kind of turned into a simpering idiot. And she ends up dying, and it's rumored that her ghost haunts the Seven Gables, playing a ghostly harp in the dead of night. In our present day, the Seven Gables is old and falling apart. It's at the, at the end of its horrible history, and it's inhabited by the old and poor and grumpy Hebzapov and her senile brother Clifford. Now, it's also rumored throughout the Pynchon history that every so often a new incarnation of Colonel Pynchon is born, who becomes just like him, ruthless in his dealings, and ends up dying in a very similar way. And we, again, have a... uh, current incarnation of Colonel Pynchon in Judge Jaffrey Pynchon. He's a pillar of New England society on the outside, but he's also a ruthless schemer. Uh, He's got nefarious deeds he's hiding in the background, and again, he is searching for this lost deed that will supposedly give the Pynchons their fortune. He's very ruthless in his search of that. Now, we have an introduction into the story that we can see a lot in those early Gothic novels in The Young Phoebe, who's a distant cousin who comes to stay with them at the House of Seven Gables, and she's a ray of hope, youth. She lightens the atmosphere, suddenly makes life worth living for both Hepzibah and Clifford. Um, and in fact, the main um, climax of the, the this novel's uh, gothic trappings don't happen until Phoebe goes home again for a short vacation. So it's almost like her presence is staving off the house of the, the the evil of the house. When she goes away for a short period, that's when everything comes to its culmination. And of course, Jaffrey um, Pynchon meets his fate, dying, choking on blood, a kind of a consumptive disease. Also, we have a very interesting character in The Seven Gables in a boarder who's living there in the Gables. He's kind of a mysterious figure, rumored at practicing mesmerism or witchcraft. And his trade, I have a hard time pronouncing the word, so I'm just going to describe what it is he does. A derog typist. His trade is making woodcuts of people's faces, kind of caricatures of them out of wood. And it's interesting that his characters always show what they really are like on the inside. You know, if they are cruel and ruthless, and no matter how pleasant they look in life, his woodcuts of them always reveal that inner nature. And he's there throughout the novel. He lives there. He's got a little garden there. And he ends up encountering Phoebe 
and they um, became become fast friends. And of course, it's revealed to us by the end of the story that this man is a descendant of Matthew Maul himself, hence the mesmerism and the witchcraft. And it's interesting the way Hawthorne chooses to end this, is that after Judge Jaffrey ends up meeting his fate, Phoebe returns, all is explained and thrown at the table, and when we find out that Phoebe and the descendant of Matthew Mull both harbor a love for each other, so they end up getting married, and this ends up healing. Like a lot of those, actually, like a lot of those early Gothic novels that are read, this union at the end of the story ends up healing the curse of the Seven Gables um, and kind of bringing a closure or resolution to the story. So there's some nice balance in symmetry there. Interestingly enough, when, when Lovecraft talks about Hawthorne, he praises Hawthorne's wonderful sense of atmosphere and that he's able to inject definitely these glimpses of horror in his stories but i think it's endings like this one where lovecraft stops short of saying that hawthorne has really any type of inheritance he's left behind or heritage he's left behind as a horror writer well simply from a literature point of view this is a seems a very nice way to end the story that there's a balance and resolution that the, the younger generation the younger the younger generation of the the pensions and the malls by resolving their conflicts in their marriage end up you know, resolving the curse and kind of if you want to say setting the house free and the ending of the story has this nice little little part about how finally Alice Pynchon's spirit which you know would occasionally play that harp was finally able to soar heavenward freed from the house of the seven gables so moving on we're going to look at the dying house and early in the broadcast i said that houses can sometimes just offer nice symbolism the house reflects the inhabitant and vice versa. And we have The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe, uh, a nice compact little tale where our narrator, first-person narrator, is invited to visit his old friend Roderick Usher out of the family mansion. He arrives to find Roderick suffering from a nervous disease of some kind, a hypersensitivity where every noise is louder, every sensation is more acute. Uh, it's pushing him to nervous extremes. And he spends some time with them, trying to uh, soothe him, console him just by his presence. He has a sister, Madeline Usher, who eerily looks very much like Roderick. They're twins. They're also the last of the Ushers. They both seem to be of not great health, somewhat infirm. Uh, and there's hinted there, too, that not only are they the last of the Ushers, they're also the last uh, products of a, a family that is exclusively interwed. So you've got kind of a weakened stock there because of interbreeding. During our narrator's stay... Madeline, of course, dies. We should be all familiar with this story. For some reason, Roderick does not deign to bury her right away. He wants to kind of lay her at rest for about uh, two weeks in the family vault or the family tomb before he finally buries her or lays her at rest. Of course, toward the end, we realize that, that, or Roderick realizes in horror that, oh, I accidentally buried her. She really wasn't dead. And this is something he's been fearing this entire time. And of course, by the end of the story, when both characters finally die, so does the house. Literally, as our narrator is fleeing, he sees the House of Usher crack down the middle and sink into the moors. It's a really brief tale. We're not really going to explicate it much further than that. We could, we could probably do a whole class on the House of the Fall of the House of Usher. 
But uh, uh, again, when we were talking earlier in the episode about how houses can often be good symbols of the people themselves, this is an excellent case, excellent scenario. Um, And I have to mention, although I'm going to mention this later on, an excellent, I don't want to say update, but an extension of this tale is, is Usher's Passing by Robert McCammon beautifully gothic novel that, that imagines that, okay, the ushers really did exist. Maybe Edgar Allan Poe wrote his story, but he was basing it off a guy he actually knew. And he looks at the usher family in a very, very gothic tale. Done very, very well. I highly recommend it. Usher's pa- Passing by Robert McCammon. If you've ever loved that story, The Fall of the House of Usher, Robert McCammon just does it, you know, wonderful justice in that novel. So now we come to The Haunted House, The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. And ironically enough, this is an interesting example of what Lovecraft was talking about in his work about how sometimes it's very interesting that writers of different genres entirely end up trying their hand at the horror genre. Henry James has also written a ghost story, which we'll look at when we talk about ghost stories. But he was primarily a literary writer, somewhat urbane. But here is his entry into the ghost story or haunted house lexicon. Um... Now, as far as the story itself, the prose is a little bit dense, uh, much denser than The uh, Seven Gables. Anyone familiar with Henry James's work? This is simply a hallmark of his. But here on The Turn of the Screw, we have a very nice, tight narrative. It's first person, our unnamed governess. As soon as she gets to Bly House, we kind of hit the ground running, and we've kind of very straight shot to the end. It's much shorter than The Seven Gables. So even though the prose itself is a little bit dense at times, the dialogue is actually pretty crisp. And the straight-ahead action, it's a pretty tight story, pretty tight narrative. Um, but we have, again, what has become, in many ways, a classic motif. A governess is hired to look after two children of a widower, a rich widower who's not there most of the time or hardly at all or ever. Uh, she travels to Bly House to watch after two children, Miles and Flora. And very, the very beginning of the story, everything is very mundane. Not a lot's happening. They're out in the country. We do have a troubling hint of the future when Miles is, for some reason, dismissed from school, his private school. We don't know why. He's just sent home, and he's never allowed back again. And we're not sure what's going on there, uh, but that's a little bit of a hint of trouble. It's not too long before, of course, our governess uh, encounters her first ghost. And, and as the story unfolds, it becomes apparent that Bly House is haunted by two ghosts. Haunted by Miss Jessel, the former governess who died under mysterious circumstances, and her lover, a Peter Quint, who are not sure what he really is. He wasn't really a servant. Um, he wasn't really a member of the household, but he was somebody that, for some reason, the uh, the master of the household, who we never really get a chance to see, gave him quite a lot of free reign around the house, and especially around the children. And as the story progresses, I will say this, Henry James does a wonderful job amping up the tension here very subtly, because we're never quite sure of what the relationship was between Peter Quint, Miss Jessel, and the children. They never come out and say it, whether this is simply Henry James's restraint or the, uh, the dictates of decorum at the time he's writing this novel. 
all he ever comes out and says through the the servant uh, who's experiencing these uh, hauntings vicariously because she ironically never sees the ghost. So it's funny how the the turn of the screw it ends up proving itself as a as a supernatural gothic story. But we verge on the equivocal gothic there for a while because the ghosts are very crafty into how they present themselves to our narrator. Uh, the children themselves they've been beguiled by the ghosts, so they're very crafty in discrediting the governess. But the other servant never ever actually sees the ghosts, so there is a little bit of doubt that is cast on the narrator herself for a while. Um, but in her recountings, the servant girl's recountings of Peter, Quint, and Miss Jessel, all she ever says is that he was too free with the children, especially the boy. And we're not sure what that means, right? There are some really disturbing implications. What type of relationship existed between these kids and their governess and her lover? Too free? That brings up a lot of you know disturbing thoughts. And also the fact that the ghosts have apparently, whatever it was that they started with those children, they have returned from the grave to continue. So that he does a really, really nice job with that. And especially with the way the children turn. They're very sly. They seem to be a lot smarter than they should be. And we get the idea that these ghosts, again, are grooming these kids for you know whatever it is, for whatever reason, turning them against um, our governess. Now, I'm actually not going to give you the ending of this story. In some ways, I'm not giving you book reviews and saying, oh, I won't spoil the ending for you, because a lot of times discussing the ending is important and discussing how these books fit in the category, but I had actually forgotten what a wonderful little um, abrupt twist this novel ends on, so I'm actually not going to give you the ending. Uh, You're kind of left to wondering who really wins here. Does the governess win? Does the ghost win? You know, who's the... A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today quote-unquote winner for the kids' souls. It's also interesting, I find the turn, of the, sco- the turn of the Screw to be, ironically, a self-aware work. In The Philosophy of Horror by Noel Carroll, which, again, I highly recommend for anyone who wants to do any kind of study of uh, horror literature, 
he mentions that what he finds to be very unique in the horror genre is that horror writers are very aware of their heritage. They know of these stories that have gone before them, and they very often like to make references to them, whether it be horror movies or horror stories or things like that. Whether in uh, clever, subtle asides or just outright pastiches, they like to reference them. And I found it to be very funny, that or very interesting, that early on in the turn of the screw, our narrator, in trying to figure out what's going on in their house, actually says something to the, to the like of, I wonder if this is a case of a mystery of Adolfo, or do I have a mad relative locked in the house somewhere? Which is, which is such a blatant reference to Anne Radcliffe's work, and the next work we're going to look at very briefly, Jane Eyre. And I thought it was interesting that even that early on, uh, someone writing a haunted house story was so very aware of the inheritance they were stepping into and making direct allusion or reference to it. So we're going to close off our episode today with just a very brief look at a natural gothic tale, simply because it just establishes a motif that's used so often in literature um, in Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Uh, anyone, of course, is familiar with Jane Eyre. It's a governess novel, um, and for the most part, it revolves around Jane's life as an orphan, and then uh, eventually when she comes to Thornfield House and becomes a governess and oversees the uh, happenings there. But it's not long after she gets to Thornfield with all these strange things start happening. Voices in the night, a locked room she's not allowed entrance into. You know, what's going on here? Is it a ghost? Of course, this is a natural gothic, and it's eventually explained to us that Mr. Rochester, the person who she's looking after his uh, household for, um, who, of course, she's, you know, falling in love with, has locked his mad wife in the attic. And she's the one that's causing all these voices and strange happenings. She's eventually the ruin of Thornfield House killing herself and burning the whole house down. But it's interesting, that mad relative, which Henry James so glibly refers to in The Turn of the Screw, that becomes a very uh, canonical motif, you know, locking that mad relative. And there's a couple other, I've read several, you know, modern mysteries that were more humorous in tipping their hat to that tradition, but that became kind of a... uh, element of that natural gothic of that mad relative that we lock away that we don't want to admit and they're the source of the mysterious goings on well that brings us to a close of this edition of the of horror 101 uh, you know i hope that what we've presented here has um been interesting or illuminating and once again i encourage any comments or suggestions if you're on facebook look up studying horror or even type in horror 101 explorations of the horror genre Uh, we've created a facebook page simply to interact to post some of the things i'm studying if anyone has any interest in um, making any suggestions feel free by all means for the future we're going to continue on in our next episode looking at the house and we're going to look at in particular uncle silas by sheridan lefanu the house in the brain by sir edward bulver lytton the haunted house story by charles dickens and you'll know that you'll remember earlier in the episode i said that we're going to find a lot of bleed between the two uh, the four the categories especially between the house and the ghost The Haunted House Story by Charles Dickens is an interesting uh, installment that I discovered quite by accident that is definitely going to offer us that bleed between Haunted House and Simply Ghost Story. And the natural gothic that we're going to look at is going to be Wuthering Heights, which I was actually quite surprised. I'm currently reading that right now. I was actually quite surprised that uh, Lovecraft made such a generous mention of Wuthering Heights, which we probably would just consider as a a piece of um, literary fiction. But even halfway through it, I can see in the character of Heathcliff and his um, 
mysterious origins and his rather inhuman behavior at times as to why Lovecraft would give this story such weight in the development of the horror genre. So we will look at that next time. And again, uh, I hope you've enjoyed the, the episode. Uh, and again, feel free to look us up on Facebook and to post the comments or suggestions at any time. That having been said, have a good day and keep reading. Thank you, Kevin. I am looking forward to the next episode as I've looked forward to all the episodes you've put forth for us here at Horror 101. Ah, yes. The Turn of the Screw. Oh, yes, please, please read it. Yes, Hollywood and, I suppose, Pinewood have dipped into the story several times, found things in that well, but it has yet to produce a thoroughly satisfying film. So I do recommend the book, The Words on the Page. Speaking of which, tonight's fiction is by Ms. Cat Rambo. Cat lives in the Pacific Northwest. She was the co-editor of Fantasy Magazine from 2007 to 2011, which effort garnered her a 2012 World Fantasy Special Award non-professional nomination. She collaborated with Jeff Vandermeer on The Surgeon's Tale and Other Stories, published in 2007. Her short stories have appeared in such places as Asimov's Science Fiction, Weird Tales, Clark's World, Strange Horizons. She has worked as a programmer writer for Microsoft and a tarot card reader, and she claims that both professions involve both technical knowledge and a willingness to go with the flow. Kat is a graduate of Johns Hopkins Writing Seminars and Clarion West, and John Barth has described Kat's writings as, quote, works of urban mythopia, unquote. Her stories, and I'm quoting her here, take place in a universe where chickens aid the lovelorn, death is just another face on the train, and Bigfoot gives interviews to the media on a daily basis. Her collection... Eyes Like Sky and Coal and Moonlight was an Endeavor Award finalist in 2010. Well, one could go on, but why should one, when one has Cat Rambo herself to speak for her? Here, without further ado, from me is... Events at Fort Plenitude by Cat Rambo December 27th, Duke Theo's reign, 11th year... Fort Plenitude. In the coldest nights of the winter, when the new moon rides the sky's breast like an arrow, the foxwomen come out of the pine woods. Their flashes of hair are scarlet cardinals against the blue snow shadows. They sing an odd whining song like puppies who have lost the teeth. Those are the nights that the sentries are changed every half hour, and they come back with cold chapped lips and frost crystals along their jacket fronts. Every night in the dark of the moon, we can see three or four of the animal women out among the snowbanks. Ensign Caruso keeps track of the sightings in the fort's logbook. Starting December 17th, there were five, immediately followed by two nights of solo visitations. We post female soldiers more often on those cold nights, or married men with their wives here at the front. During last year in the trade village that preceded this fort, Two men threw off their clothes and ran out into the snow, chasing fox women. They found them frozen solid among the reeds of the riverbank, 
the slender blades of ice, fixing them like swords. When they tried to disentangle them, the men shattered like crystal and were strewn across the ice. One-Eyed Bill sent two of his wives down with wisp brooms to sweep the ice for fragments, but even so, the next summer, no one would eat frogs or turtles caught from that bank. December 31st, Duke Theo's reign, 11th year, Fort Plenitude. The food situation continues dismal. If the captain were a wiser man, he would seek to keep his troops busier. Instead, they sit around the fort and vie to see who can complain the longest and hardest about the meals. It is impossible to spice them up, but we each carry a little skin of salt and pepper mixed according to our taste. The cook, it is rumored, has been using yellow salt to cook with, chipped from a deer lick near the fort, and saving the finer salt to sell to the soldiers. January 2nd, Duke Theo's reign, 12th year, Fort Plenitude. Captain Mercer and the cook have been arguing again. It's clear that the man has been skimming off profits and that the paucity of our meals is due to his graft. Nonetheless, he makes meals for Captain Mercer and our officers' mess that are better than the average run, and so his corruption is tolerated. But as his supply of seasonings has dwindled, the captain's temper has grown harsher. I went so far yesterday as to break one of my three demon gems and send the beast to the southern isles for an armload of fruit. If the sorcerer corps knew, they would court-martial me for wasting such a valuable thing, but I couldn't help it. Hunger ate at me. I told the demon to bring as much as it could carry, but it purposely made its arms as small as possible and brought me only three apples and a shriveled fig. I had meant to share my bounty with the soldiers, but when I saw the portion's scantiness, I took it all for my own and ate it in one sitting, greedily, licking my fingers, devouring even the stems and seeds, and refusing to think about what I had done. The demon stood staring at me all the time that I ate. It was a leathery-winged Demonica falciformis with silky-tendrilled hair and small black eyes that seemed intelligent. Plino argues that demons possess the equivalent intelligence of great Barbary apes or chimera, but this one seemed possessed of a peculiar, innocent malignity. It would have torn the flesh from my bones and rejoiced in it with the happy savagery of a form mankind has not known since we first learned to worry. I am morose and weepy these days. At night I turn in my bed and send tiny sparks among my bedclothes to seek out the fleas and lice nesting there. The linens smell of smoke, but this is better by far than bedbugs. All the while tears stream down my face and trail among my whiskers, dampening them and making them sticky. My mustache curls with sorrow, and I am oppressed by the sins of the world. January 28th. Duke Theo's reign, twelfth year, Fort Plenitude. The days and nights are tedious. I tried to organize a party to go dig along the banks for cattail roots, which, according to a manuscript I read last week, are edible, indeed a delicacy among some tribes, but the water had frozen so solid that there was no cracking it. We tried building fires atop the ice, but they sank, icy mud extinguishing them. We returned with nothing for our efforts, not even a brace of squirrels, because the soldiers were too loud and frightened every animal away. The captain has eighty troopers altogether, two lieutenants, four sergeants, a cook, 
and myself, the only sorcerer in the group, all of us are miserable. Many of the men have come here in search of land grants for diligent labor, only to find a captain ready to swindle them out of their holdings in exchange for stakes in dubious gold mines or counterfeit artifacts. Others, like myself, are one form of exile or another, trying to escape memories or pursuers. We are not in search of anything. We know there's only cold and misery here for us in civilization's hinterlands. February 2nd, Duke Theo's reign, 12th year, Fort Plenitude. I lay awake last night, belaboring myself with guilt for not saving the fruit for the nursing women here. I was greedy and foolish. Still, I cannot help but think that divided among the six of them, it would have been only enough of a taste to torment. My ministry to their health is surely worth a small price, to keep me lively and able to tend to their needs while they are caring for their babies. I have talked the captain into having Ensign Caruso cut up the old boiler and stove that we had sitting out near the dock. He uses the forge and cuts the metal into inch-wide squares that the natives prize for making spearheads or hide scrapers. They trade us five gallons of dried corn for each square. The cook soaks it and makes it into porridge that the women eat. We must keep the babies healthy and strong. In the spring, a boat will come by and take the latest crop of babies back to the more settled lands where people are cutting down trees, plowing fields, and doing things that require healthy young workers. A new generation of settlers that can produce more in turn to man the forts and breed more babies. All part of the Duke's plan for expansion. By the time the boat reaches Tabat, there will be half a dozen wet nurses aboard it, and the infants they supply, plus a small goat herd, sails full of just washed linens and a few guards. It has been a long and tedious winter. Their ranks will grow before spring comes, I am sure, since two additional women are pregnant. I see them fed better than most as well. The fort is too small to rate a doctor, so my small dabbling in medicine suffices for the ailments here, dysentery, syphilis, boils, chillblains, and pregnancies. I've been thinking about the spring and the fish markets at Tabat and what my mother would cook. Baked black bass, spiced eels, fried smelts, boiled mackerel, fried skate wing, codfish balls, baked trout, flounder cooked with bitter greens. February 28th, Duke Theo's reign, 12th year, Fort Plenitude. Today, Ensign Caruso brought me up to the gun tower. The wind whistled and screamed in my ears. We looked out across the river's white sweep, nearly a mile wide, and saw a dark mass moving across it, hesitantly at first, then with mounting confidence and speed. It came closer, and we realized it was a herd of buffalo. The ice was frozen thick enough all the way across that the animals, hundreds of them, could make their way to our eastern shore in fruitless search of fodder. The captain dispatched several men to shoot stragglers in order to relieve the tedium of our meals. They killed several dozen and dragged them into the main yard of the fort. I took my spyglass and watched from atop the outer wall. One-eyed Bill Lafitte and his wives moved back and forth on the scarlet ice, engaged in the same task of butchery. I imagined the ice under them, thick as layers of rock, shadows swimming underneath, deep down in the dark water. Two wives stripped the hides off the carcasses and piled them on a rickety sled that the four other wives pulled. 
One of them had an infant tied to her back. I imagined the last wife was at home, tending the brood of children. The human women were flat-faced and expressionless as they moved back and forth, taking the best of the meat to pile on the sled. The two snake women were equally expressionless, but their tongues flickered in their reptilian faces, bright as flames against the winter white of their scales. The cook roasted buffalo steaks, and the fort smelled wonderful for an evening. Everyone went around smiling, but at table the meat proved stringy and tough. This far into winter, the animals are themselves half dead of hunger and have little flesh to spare. March 1st, Duke Theo's reign, 12th year, Fort Plenitude. Big White, the Shoshal shaman, came to see me. It was his third visit to my cabin, but the careful attention he gave every detail was the same as the first two times. I drew the structure of the universe and its concentric circles of realms like a vast onion on the wall, and we debated its shape, for he insists that it is different and that spikes from other realms protrude upon our own. At least that is what I believe he tried to sketch out for me. His English is bad, and my show shawl non-existent. Rumor back at the College of Mages in Tabat held that the native mages, as well as the snake people, are sophisticated in their understanding of magic, but this seemed like rank gibberish to me. He made tea for both of us, a pleasant brew of flower petals and leaf fragments that made the inside of my cabin smell like summer. Tension dropped away as though I had shrugged it off with my buffalo hide robe and hung it on the peg just inside the door. He said, Cold winter, and touched the demon gems on my desk, shaking his head sorrowfully. They do not believe in trafficking with spirits, and if he knew I had traveled here in one's arms, he might not speak with me again. Demon travel is unpleasant at best. The beast has one duty, and one duty only to discharge to convey their burden from one point to another. They will not pause to rest, no matter how long the flight, and they are not at any pains to make their passenger comfortable. I came in the summer, when the weather was warm, but at one point we flew through a great lightning storm, and the demon would not change its course, no matter how I shouted at it. I asked Big White about the fox women, but he pretended not to know what I meant, I will have one of Lafitte's wives teach me more shoshaw, so I have words for the magical concepts I want to convey. If there is an easy way to drive them off, I would like to know. March 2nd, Duke Theo's reign, 12th year, Fort Plenitude. Slipped exceedingly well last night. March 5th, Duke Theo's reign, 12th year, Fort Plenitude. My sister Sarah's birthday. I sent her a pile of pelts last fall, marten and beaver, to make herself a coat, and warned her that come winter, communications would be at a standstill due to the frozen river. I imagine her sitting in her comfortable, well-appointed house, eating sandwiches spread with a layer of butter and cress, the thin leaves from the greenhouse, sharp and bitter against the bland bread. She did not want me to leave to butt, but after the failed experiment that killed Melissa and our unborn, I could not stay. I could not endure the eyes of the other mages, knowing what I had done, how badly I had predicted events. Even this privation is better than the shame and sorrow. I caught a handful of snow sprites in the afternoon, near the outer wall of the fort. They looked like crane flies, insects as big around as a Spanish doubloon, but all wing and legs, and little else. They have tiny faces made of ice, 
they do not speak. Why has God made these creatures that resemble us in all but intelligence? Deep in the woods, Lafitte claims to have seen winter sprites as big as wolves or buffalo, enormous flying things that move along the edges of snowstorms, riding the winds in a flurry of icy chitin. I put the ones I caught in a glass jar. They fluttered for twenty-two minutes before succumbing to the heat of the room and dying, melting away into a noisome, clotted liquid that smelled of vinegar. March 6, Duke Theo's reign, twelfth year, Fort Plenitude. When Big White came today, he shook his head and said over and over, Bad, very bad. He led me outside the fortress walls and showed me ice runes on the outer walls, twelve feet high, two-thirds the height of the walls. I asked him who had put them there, for I did not recognize the language or the writing, but it was clearly set there by sorcery. I had sensed none the night before, but I am so exhausted and hungry in the evenings that I do little but imagine meals at my mother's house back in Tabat. He said winter, and then a word I did not know, and indicated this entity had put it there. He threw handsfuls of snow at the markings until they were partly obscured, but his face was troubled. Inside the fort, I showed him a sketch Caruso had made of one of the fox women the night before. Did this woman draw the marks, I asked. He shook his head and said, Dead, very bad, tapping the paper. That was all I could get out of him. I asked him about trade for food, although I hated to throw myself on his mercy like that. But the pieces of iron were all gone, and we have very few other goods. I indicated my belongings, trying to keep the wine out of my tone. Surely there must be some equipment there he would like, I said. It would be easy enough to replace next year when spring came and the river thawed. Perhaps I'd even make the trip myself, go to see Sarah in her fine new coat. He took three small prisms, the most valuable objects there, and that evening dropped off two bushels of smoked trout. He must have said something to Lafitte as well, for one of the wives brought a sack of flour and another of dried meat. I distributed it among the pregnant women, despite the grumbling of the others, but saved a handful each for myself. March 7th, Duke Theo's reign, 12th year, Fort Plenitude. Last night I stayed awake, resolved to see the fox women. I sat in the tower with the sentry, watching the wood's edge. When I saw a blur of silver and blue fog, I looked with my spyglass. She had Melissa's face, and she looked straight at me. It was only the bowl in her hand, steaming beef stew with dumplings, I knew, that kept me from running to her. The smiling lure was too broadly painted, and I realized it must be reading my thoughts somehow. No wonder men have run out to them. In the morning, I told the captain what I had discovered, that the fox women were trying to lure us out, but he would not listen. He had maps spread out across his desk. Come spring, he would take a patrol gold panning, he said cheerfully to me. Wouldn't that be an adventure? His fingers trembled as he traced a line across the mountain, translucent blue as frost. The cold had driven him mad. I broke my second demon gem and sent a letter to Tabat, to the Army Corps headquarters. I explained our circumstances and the dangers. I explained that the captain was unresponsive. I said, send food and more demon gems and word of hope, or we will perish. The demon took the scroll away. 
This one was feathered like a peacock and had an odd snout that lolled loosely when it sniffed at me. I wait for the reply. March 8th, through Cleo's reign, 12th year, Fort Plenitude. I have been advised that the winter has affected all frontier forts adversely and that the food has been dispatched overland. Due to the frozen river, it will not reach here for at least six weeks. They send no gems or other devices of aid. I have been officially demoted for using the gem and reminded of their cost and scarcity. In six weeks, we will be licking the bones of the three horses left to us. I sent a big white to ask for more food, but he did not come. At length, I donned snowshoes and walked over to the Shoshal camp. Winter has not hit them as hard as it has us. There are fewer of them, and they spent the summer gathering food while we were building the fort walls. He gave me handfuls of smoked meat and a kind of thick biscuit baked with dried berries. I ate greedily until my stomach hurt and washed it down with gulps of hot, bark-scented tea. He said, danger to the fort, babies, babies. There is danger to the children, I asked. He shook his head and drew a figure in the snow, a woman amid pine trees. You say fox women, he said, because hair red like fox, but not fox, not women. Babies that die go into the winter and make more. They want. I was not sure what he was saying, that babies died and became fox women. He tapped the figure with a gnarled finger. Baby want, he said, just want, 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 no more. Was there no way to ward them off? He shook his head, no. March 9th, Duke Theo's reign, 12th year, for plenitude. Yielding to my entreaties, the captain sent several soldiers out hunting again, but they came back with only a bony elk, barely a mouthful or two of meat apiece. The cook stewed the heart for the officer's mess, but there was nothing but meat and water. The vegetables had gone long ago. I found tracks all along the walls, light tracks, Barefoot tracks, each foot tiny and arched, like that of a child. Snow sprites clustered motionless along the runes, like a fuzz of white velvet. I brought the captain out to look at them, but he only smiled and patted my arm. This is a land of plenty, he said. In the summer, the bees will sing in the sour gum trees and drip honey into our mouths. Another seven soldiers have died of dysentery so far this week, bringing our numbers to forty-two. We cannot make it till spring. I lie awake trying to figure out a plan. Should I use my last demon gem to summon a final messenger to plead our case? Did they not understand that we will die without immediate surcease? There are eight babies here now, aged between two and six months. They are thin and sickly, and they cry from the cold. I imagine the fox women taking them away, making them into new monsters. I imagine them walking across the snow slopes, clothed in glittering snow sprites, legs lengthening with each stride, faces elongating, hair falling into blazes of crimson longing. Why do they only prey on the men? Are we weaker in our hearts? March 10th, Duke Theo's reign, 12th year, Fort Plenitude. For dinner, we had watery gruel, a scant cupful per person, measured most strictly. More hunting parties dispatched. March 12th, Duke Theo's reign, 12th year, Fort Plenitude. 
Lafitte and his wives are dead. They found them frozen in their building. The children were all taken. We brought the last of their food to the fort, but it is sufficient only for a few more days. Hunting party's still unsuccessful. We ate the last horse today. March 13th, Duke Theo's reign, 12th year, Fort Plenitude. There are definitely more of them now. March 18th, Duke Theo's reign, 12th year, Fort Plenitude. Finally, I take up the last demon gem. I walk across the fort, pass by the dead and dying. The cook is dead now, died of bloody flux. The captain has holed himself up in his office, crouched over his maps. Faithful Caruso helps me. We sew an immense bag of buffalo hide, lined with the softest, warmest furs we can find among Lafitte's bales. We make it open at the top. We put the babies in it, one by one. The mothers who are still alive help us. I shatter my last gem and give the directions to the demon. We can only hope a few will survive. The ones towards the outside of the bag will succumb to the cold first. They say freezing is not an unpleasant death. And when the demon arrives, perhaps it will only be delivering a package of frozen or drowned corpses. Demons are unreliable, to say the least. But perhaps one or two will survive. We watch the bag float up towards the sky. The demon is a kind I've never seen before, with rounded ivory horns and glittering silvery skin, immense wings that claw upward at the chilly air. It is quite splendid in its own way. When night comes, I can hear the runes working on the outside of the walls, cracking them with icy pressures. Caruso and I wait in the watchtower near the swivel-mounted cannon, Snow sprites swirling around its barrel. I can hear them coming, whimpering with want as they walk forward through the snow. Perhaps one will look like Melissa again. about tonight's story. It is set in an outpost of a place called Tabat. Tabat is the fantasy seaport in which Kat has based numerous short stories in her novel The Moon's Accomplice. Tabat exists in what she calls a steampunk magical world where intelligent beasts, uh, unicorns and dragons and such, exist, but where they have no legal rights. Their status is in part a reaction to the depredations of sorcerers who created many of them in the Shadow Wars, which destroyed an entire continent. Kat says she always wanted to create a seaport, and that Tabat started as a proposal for an area of an online game being created back in the mid-90s. And while the game, and another game in which Tabat was to have been the locale, never came to pass, uh, several years later... She returned to her seaport and, in 2004, began writing stories set there. 
Tabat's growth has been shaped by Kat's interest in and reading of early American history. As I have written it, she says, Tabat has continued to grow in clarity. New landmarks have appeared, such as the Pisky Wood, the Great Tram, and the Waterfall in the Duke's Plaza. Well, we don't see those places in this story, but it is to there where our outpost reports. I'm very fond of Tibet, she says, and I'd like to see it reach the heights of other fantasy fiction cities, such as Ambergris and Lankmar. Yeah, I think I would, too. Thanks again, Cat. And, appropriately enough, Advents at Fort Plentitude was read to us tonight by Stephen Thomas Howe. I say appropriate because Stephen is a career soldier living in South Carolina with his wife and two sons. By day, he occupies a tiny cubicle in a massive army headquarters. But by night, he writes speculative fiction and plans his next escape attempt. I believe that currently he is deployed. End. That will be that, children of the night. If you're hungry, why don't you have another bite? Oh, I'm sorry. Mahler, did you? Well, there it is. The tray is empty, and I fear so. So is the larder. I guess I'll have to go to the store tomorrow, tomorrow night. You'll just have to scoot home, I guess, and grab a quick bite before bedtime. It's not far, is it? No. You can make it home before the pangs attack you, so be up and doing. Be bright and chipper. Be on your way, because the chill is coming back. One of these days, I am just going to have to go outside with you and see what it's like. Well, well, another time. Don't forget. Book. Spider Robinson class on how to write science fiction. It's not your grandfather's how-to course. No, it is not. So, are you all wrapped up? So, be off with you. Dash home before, well, you know, before the night, the cold, the hunger, the snake women, the fox women get you. Yeah, you'll make it. I know you will. And you'll snack on something tasty when you get there. And then, alas, then you'll go to bed on a full belly. Oh, not good, that. Sleep will come. Oh, yes, sleep eventually. Sleep and, well, maybe not such pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Out of the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.